What a rich provision indeed it is in Christ Jesus that you and I are blessed today to assemble together to do so as we engage in those acts of worship that our Heavenly Father has approved. It's good to be back with you today. Denise, Brooklyn, and I are thankful to be able to be back here. We appreciate again the opportunity that was ours to attend the, the Polishing the Pulpit and to be with the Willette congregation this past Wednesday evening. But today as we're back with our church family, a consideration of a lesson I've entitled, Bishops and Deacons. You noticed in the lesson text a moment ago as Brother Eddie read that, that it was taken from the opening verse of the book of Philippians. Aren't you fascinating that as Paul addressed that congregation, he first of all made mention, of course, of the brethren there, highlighting the existence and the flourishing nature of that church in Philippi, but he especially made note of the bishops and the deacons. Among all the membership at Philippi, there was something to be noted. There were these offices recognized, first of all, as the bishop, and then as also, of course, as the deacon. Why don't we spend a moment this morning, the duration of our lesson, reflecting on these offices in the, in the New Testament church, thinking about the reality of them, and some comments the New Testament has to share with us about not only the existence, but the work that they do, the blessedness that it is to all of those who are in that congregation. This opening slide will be one that will motivate us as we proceed along that way of consideration. Our discussion of the bishops and the deacons will not deviate, of course, at all from the reality of the great message of Jesus Christ. When Paul addressed the church in Corinth, chapter 2 begins like this, "...and I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified." The central message that Paul wished to share was Christ Jesus and Him only. That's all that we're interested to do today, of course. What did Christ say about the deacons and the bishops? And so it is at the bottom of that slide. One of the elements in the church that has at least been able to pose some degree of confusion, what is it about these two offices? What does Jesus have as their work? What's each one supposed to do? What is His intent for their blessedness in light of the congregation that they serve? Let's see if we can unfold some of those things as we study this lesson this morning. This next slide is just an initial intent to highlight the great wisdom of God as it relates to leadership, to that leadership as it's presented in the various realms and arenas of life. I have begun with this statement, any organization will not know the degree of success which would be intended, nor the degree of efficiency that would be intended, unless it has appropriate and vital leadership. That's true in society, isn't it? No business is going to be successful. It will not be a good steward of the blessedness and the resources available to it unless there is the leadership that will prompt it to use them appropriately. The university... I work, of course, for University of Nashville, and suffice it to say, without any leadership, it will proceed along a pathway of wastefulness in a hurry. What about the home? In the, all, in the great wisdom of God, He has seen fit to place the husband as the head of the wife. He's done that in Ephesians 5, 21 and 22, 
And you'll notice then there's a leadership to be presented in that home. But as you and I, of course, notice, what about the church? It's so true, isn't it, in the church? God didn't see fit to leave His church without appropriate leadership. And so on this slide, you'll notice, God has always, in every way, provided the appropriate leadership for any element of institution, in the home, in the civil government, in the church. And you and I today, of course, are 20 centuries this side of the great death of our Savior virtually, and we still appreciate the needfulness and the significance of that leadership. And today we're going to discuss both the bishops and the deacons. You'll note those examples at the bottom. We'll not devote a lot of time to these, but just to highlight. Think about Moses for a minute. Have you ever pondered the gigantic nature of the task that he was given? While he was still on the backside of Midian, Moses, you go and bring my people out of Egypt. That was a Herculean task. Millions of people in Egypt, and yet they were suffering beneath the matter of slavery. Moses, you bring them out. The Pharaoh was the most powerful ruler on earth at the time. And yet God had in mind a work for him. Did Moses, did God equip him to do it? Sure he did. Did God provide all the things necessary such that Moses could carry out that task given to him? Surely he did. I've asked you to notice a few examples. In Exodus 3 verse 10, as well as Acts 7 verses 35 and 6, here, both Old and New Testament highlight the greatness of that task and the success that Moses enjoyed in it. But along the way, could we also note this? In Numbers chapter 16, there's a fascinating recollection. What happened on that occasion when someone had the nerve to question God's authority in placing Moses as the leader? You and I remember the earth opened up and swallowed them alive. When Korah, Dathan, and Abiram thought to put themselves on an equal footing with Moses and therefore put themselves in a position of authority equal to Moses, God would have none of it. Moses and the authority vested in him were to be singularly respected. I believe you and I, before we're done today, will see that principle highlighted still in the blessedness of the church of, the, of our present day. Another example... What about the husband in the home? The husband has been given that obligation to be the leader. Fathers, bring up your children the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to borrow the wording of Ephesians 6 verse 4. Furthermore, again, as the head of the wife, that is presented to us in Ephesians 5 verses 22, 21 and following. All of that's to say, God had in mind this view whereby the home would enjoy the success available to it, only when that degree of authority was understood and implemented. One last example. What about our God? The more we study the universe around us, aren't we impressed over and over again with the regularity, the respectfulness of those laws that God has put in place? That's true in the world of physics in the world of mathematics, in the characteristic world of chemistry or biology, all of it have God's fingerprints of order all over it. Our God is not the author of confusion, to borrow the wording of 1 Corinthians 14, 33. 
for those reasons and others, we conclude that slide like this. When there's confusion that prevails, it quite likely then may fall upon an appreciation that leadership is something that could directly assist in putting to rest those problems, those issues, whatever they may be. Today, as you and I think about the church of our day, isn't it sweet to think about the bishops and the deacons? This next slide will begin our study that will take us through the rest of our time this morning. And it makes an initial observation. An observation like this. The head of the church never is going to be questioned. Jesus Christ is its head. In Colossians 1 verse 18, as Paul wrote that church in Colossae, he to them said, speaking about Christ, He is the head of the body the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. Christ Jesus is the absolute authority. All authority rests with Him, Matthew 28, 18. But you and I might pause to note this. In the infinite wisdom of Christ Jesus, He has bequeathed delegated authority to those gentlemen that we recognize as elders. Bishops, as this Philippians 1 verse 1 would discuss it. And therefore, let's turn our attention to ask at least briefly, what about the New Testament teaching concerning these men known as elders? There are several different words in the New Testament that are used to describe these men and the work that they do. I have used the word elders in large print out to the left because that's typically the word that most often is used in our present day. But you'll notice quickly beneath it are several others that are used in the New Testament. May I invite you to notice, in the text before us, the word bishop appears. As Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, a special mention was made of those that were the bishops. But that isn't the only word. In addition to the elder, the bishop, pastor. You and I are probably well aware that maybe there's no single word in the religious world misused more than that one. Because the denominational world has so quickly made use of it and applied it to a preacher. But may you and I, of course, in the wisdom of the book of God, realize preachers are not pastors. The elders are the pastors. One next word would be this one, overseers. That's a very leading word, isn't it? These gentlemen are described with that rather prolific term. They're called overseers. They see over. That is to say, they are those who, by their leadership, guidance, vision, and direction, they oversee the activities in terms of the particulars and the appreciation of this group of people. Presbyters. Another word yet that appears in the New Testament. I believe we're already gaining an appreciation. These men are of significant significance that a number of words are used to describe what they do. As we begin our journey to discuss them rather briefly, I'd like you to be impressed with how Paul referred to them. Look with me in Acts chapter 20 for just a moment. Acts chapter 20. While you're turning to that page, let me at least provide you with a brief background. Paul, as he was, of course, desirous of meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus. 
Now, Paul didn't have time due to the haste with which he needed to get to Jerusalem. And so he couldn't take the time to journey to Ephesus, so he had those elders come and meet him. But notice how he referred to them, beginning in verse number 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. So he didn't ask for the whole congregation of the church in Ephesus to come and meet with him. He summoned the elders. Now may I ask, after they came, how did Paul refer to them when he met with them? Look at verse 28. "...take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers." That word overseer literally means bishop. And so after those gentlemen came, and while he was in discussion with them, he very tenderly and yet powerfully, powerfully referred to them as bishops. Now again, you and I have just noted, that's the word he used to refer to those elders of the church in Philippi, in Philippians 1 verse 1. To that might we add this. So what literally do these gentlemen do? Well, the original word, as it appears here in Acts 20, verse 17, it refers to one who presides over the assembly. That is to say, this group of people, those, those people in Ephesus, those who presided over them were called the elders. They were referred to as bishops. Now, as you think about the presiding over, remember... The folks aren't meeting 24 hours a day, seven days a week in worship. They assembled on the Lord's Day, and then other days of the week, maybe they were doing other things. And yet the one presiding over their reality and their existence as a congregation of the Lord's people were these gentlemen known as elders. Not only that, notice what else is rather quickly noted to these gentlemen. Although we just highlighted it in verse 28, perhaps it's time to note it again with even more detail. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock. May I suggest almost immediately one more matter used in description of these men. The ones over whom they're presiding are called a flock. And these men on other occasions are referred to as shepherds. It wouldn't at all be inappropriate to refer to elders as shepherds and you and I as the sheep of their flock. Isn't it true? Jesus is the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5, verses 4 and 5, and those elders of whom Peter was an example, they are called shepherds. When you and I think about a shepherd, let's go back to verse 28. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Gentlemen who occupy this role of an elder, they oversee that local flock. And what a great responsibility is theirs. What a tremendous privilege in some way is theirs, but no doubt a great responsibility. Isn't it fair to say that 1 Peter 5 verses 2 and 3 add one more comment to this. They oversee the flock among them. In other words, every local congregation, by the wisdom of God, is in a position to enjoy these elders. Elders here don't oversee the work somewhere else. Every congregation enjoys its own independence and autonomy that way. 
as these elders oversee the local work. Notice they are challenged and charged to hold fast to that word. Everything they do, the guiding thrust behind it is to utilize the Word of God and see it emanating in the lives of that flock over whom they oversee. In Titus 1 verses 8 and 9, those statements are made. Paul told Titus, you charge those elders. Now remember, Titus was working on the island of Crete. You charge those elders that they hold fast the faithful word. Elders thus are to be frequent and constant in prayer, consideration of the Word of God, so that they might use wisdom as they make their decisions and lead that flock. In addition to that, might we say this. There's a fascinating presentation in Hebrews 13. Would you turn over there with me? And in fact, so strong is it. We're going to refer to a number of the features of verse 17 of Hebrews 13. In the last chapter of that epistle, the inspired writer pointed to a number of truths, and among them he said this, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. First of all, an admonition was given Obey them that have the rule over you. We've just learned those that oversee otherwise are called these presbyters, these bishops, these shepherds, these pastors. And so it is. We are told to obey them. But the following observation is made. It says, Submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. That leads me to note this, this concern. The chief consideration... The chief concern, the principal thrust of an elder is in the spiritual well-being of the members of his flock. His chief concern is not the carpet, the parking lot, the roof, the water supply. His chief concern must always be the spiritual well-being. Is this person headed to heaven? Is this young man, this young woman, this man, this woman, is this person behaving in a way fit for the kingdom of God eternally? If it is, then that elder will lift high the hands of that person and encourage them. But if it's not, the duty and the interest of the day of judgment, did you notice? The elder is going to give account on the day of judgment. Wouldn't it be a thrilling thing to be able to present to the Lord, Lord, here is the safekeeping of everyone who is a member of my flock. But by the same token, consider the sadness when members of the flock are lost. And on that day of judgment, then you'll notice it says, for that is unprofitable for you. And so aren't we in a position to be thankful for a man? who will have such a great interest in my well-being and yours that he wants me saved and he wants me to live faithfully and he's going to lead and direct myself in such a way and you as well, of course, to where that reality is his primary mission and goal. I've stated it in this way. The chief concern of the elders as presented in the Word of God is that spiritual well-being of those members of his flock. Think again about how a shepherd behaves. 
Now, you and I perhaps live in a day and a time when sheep keeping is not as familiar as it was to the people in Bible days. There, it wasn't unusual, of course, for a man to have a, a flock of sheep. So often the Old Testament and the New as well use that and present it. Didn't Jesus say, I am the good shepherd, John 10, verses 9 and 10. And therefore He pictures all of us as members of His flock. And yet Jesus has charged those local shepherds to watch over His local flock. Maybe it is in fairness to that we could now keep in mind. A shepherd looks out for the well-being of those sheep. He makes sure they're cared for, provided for, seen after. If they're lost, he goes after them. That's what a shepherd did. Well, you'll notice in likeness to that, the shepherds of congregations today are described in very similar ways. They watch over you and me in many of the same ways that a literal shepherd would watch over a literal flock of sheep. That kind of discussion asks us to reflect again on Hebrews 13, 17. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. As shepherds watch over the flock, they of course do that with vision and intensity, ever desirous and mindful, of course, of the spiritual character of those members of that flock. You can begin to notice then that the New Testament model for a shepherd, for an elder, is very different than what models in the human nature of presentation might be. For instance, you and I know Putnam County has got a school board and there's a superintendent of schools and so that model is used to look after the affairs of the Putnam County school system. That kind of model God did not pick for His church. At a university, there's a president and a, and a board of directors. God did not pick that kind of model for His church. He picked a shepherd. He picked this man who is overwhelmed with intensity relative to the spiritual well-being of the members of that flock, and He watches for them. You'll notice in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 12 as that description is presented, they're elders of the church in Philippi, or rather in Thessalonica. They were specifically told that as they carried out their duties, oh, how great the loving pleasure of Christ was when that was done well. One last thing you'll notice on that slide brings us to appreciate one of the statements that I made earlier. Now truly, the elders may have their ideas and their considerations about the physicalities of the things of the flock. But you'll notice their chief concern back in Acts chapter 6 was this. Look back with me to that chapter if you would. Acts chapter 6. Beginning in verse number 1, there was an issue, a problem that arose in the first century church, at least on this occasion. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not meat or reason that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. If we pause there to perhaps comment, the congregation in Jerusalem had grown to the point, and there were now over 5,000. It was a large group in number according to Acts 4 verses 2 and following. And yet, we notice as they made distribution 
a physical thing now, taking care of widows in need. That's a great, great thing to do. But there were some Grecian widows being neglected. Might you and I notice the text doesn't say it was a purposeful neglect. Maybe it was an oversight. Maybe there were so many widows that those names just fell through the cracks as we may describe it. But however it was happening, the elders, or maybe I should say those apostles, had a desire to tend to this. Verse 2 says, They declared it is not reason that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. So these overseers, if you please, of that congregation... They said it's not the best interest of the flock for us to physically carry this out. There's other work we need to be doing. And therefore, look out from among you seven men. You choose some men to see this business, to make sure that these Grecian widows and the others are properly seen after. While we ourselves, verse 4, will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. We're going to be interested in the spiritual well-being of this group of God's people. What a great model. Now, in a moment when we get to the deacons, we'll notice. So here's what the deacons are to do. They can see after these tasks and make sure that they're carried out in the proper and efficient way. And those elders, those bishops and overseers, they can look with intensity and watch after the spiritual well-being of those who are the members of that flock. As you come to the bottom of that slide, you and I then aren't at all surprised that there are qualifications given in the Word of God for those men that would occupy this position. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, both of them highlight in interesting detail the features of those qualifications. As you and I reflect on all of them, you'll notice that if you enumerated all of them, perhaps there's as many as 50 qualifications therein given. In Ezekiel 34, verses 1 and following, there's a rather strong Old Testament warning provided for those situations in which an elder did not see, or maybe I should say a shepherd in the Old Testament didn't see to that duty or business in the way that God intended. We can be so thankful for those elders as they watch for our souls. Isn't it true if you or I go astray, if we go amiss, if we choose to live in a foolish way before God, we should be thankful for a man who would love me enough in kindness and yet directness to come and speak to me and warn me and admonish me and encourage me with hope that I could make things right before it's too late. That kind of consideration in the New Testament is the model God chose, the model for His church in which men occupy that role. You'll notice beyond that, we come to the deacon. Now, we've discussed the elder, and we've done so lifting high the banner of the overall desire and nature of His work. But may we be sure to appreciate the deacon is not the elder and the elder is not the deacon. The New Testament distinguishes them. They are distinct not only in nature of the office, but in the work that they do. Begin to look with me at some of these things. The word deacon means a servant. It is the translation of the Greek word diakonos, and it is so often translated as a servant 
But yet there's something unique, something special, something to be carefully noted about those men that occupy the office of the deacon. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 8, the word office is used to describe a particular kind of servant, a deacon if you please. As you and I develop that, might we notice, they really are in the chief way a servant. They are not described as overseers. They aren't described as elders, if you please. They're described as those with the heart of a servant who carry out that servanthood and do so in the following way. One of the first things we might notice, these elders then are such that these deacons that serve beneath them in the same way, of course, that the other members of that congregation do as well. Perhaps it's fair to say in light of that knowledge of a deacon, look at some of the emphases the New Testament places on them. We just noted that text in Acts chapter 6. These deacons were charged with the seeing after of that distribution to those widows in need. In other places, we'll find they were charged with other things. Quite often then, it would seem, the elders give them specific tasks to watch after or to ensure that it's carried out in the, in the appropriate way. As those tasks are given, then the obligation to carry it out rests with the dutifulness and the servant spirit of that deacon. Perhaps you and I might add this. As that was taken in Acts 6, notice that was a daily ministration. So here a deacon apparently oversaw a daily work in that first century church. As those deacons oversaw it, isn't it impressive to notice these gentlemen too have qualifications. And so you couldn't appoint a man into that position without satisfying those qualifications. 1 Timothy 3, in fact, lists several of them for these deacons. Among those qualifications, you'll note the statement that is very beautifully made. I suppose it's fair that sometimes you and I may hear that a deacon almost is viewed as a stepping stone to an elder. That's not a good way to look at it. That's not even a biblical way to look at it. A man may be well-suited and qualified, and he may serve the entirety of his adult life as a member of the church, as a deacon, and be perfectly fine for that. That may be the work in which God has most equipped him. So as you and I look upon a deacon, it's not an insult at all to be viewed as this person who, as a servant, carries out his service to God in the office of a deacon. Not only that, note this. In verse 13 of 1 Timothy 3, that blessing is characterized and stated like this. If a man carries out that well, notice the commendation that God looks upon him with. Again, verse 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So those who carry it out well, notice they purchase to themselves a good degree. To develop that thought may close that slide like this. In the book of Acts, you remember those seven men that were appointed, if you please, as deacons in chapter 6, 
five of them, we aren't given really any more details about them. But two of them are. One of the gentlemen's names was Stephen. Another one was Philip. And yet Stephen takes center stage in chapter 8. And Philip also, of course, is presented in great detail also in that same chapter. You'll notice what they did. In chapter 7, Stephen not only shared forth the message of truth, but he, he preached a great sermon and challenged a lot of people to serve the Lord. In the next chapter, Philip, he went down to Samaria and labored with great efforts in that location. I simply say that to say that when you and I think about the deacon, we think about that task that an elder may provide to that gentleman with the expectation that this good work for the cause of Christ can and will be carried out dutifully and carried out in the way that it would be very efficient and good. One last set of thoughts in the lesson today will, be draw, will draw to its conclusion. Our goal has been to hopefully clear the water that sometimes men have muddied in light of bishops and deacons. Sometimes, I suppose, we even see them as equals, and we see them all as equal leaders in a congregation, but the New Testament doesn't describe it that way. The elders are given that task of oversight. The deacons are described as those who again serve. They carry out those tasks bequeathed and charged to them. There is a sense all of us, of course, should be servants to Jesus Christ. But those who occupy that office leads me to note this conclusion about the middle of that slide. The God of heaven put this system in place. And you and I know the church as God designed it is perfect. There's no flaws in its design. There's no mistakes. There's nothing that, shall we say, ineffective. But rather, men have sought to change it. Ephesians 5.27 still declares that that church was purchased and it has neither spot nor blemish nor any such thing. To think about the bishops then and the deacons. When Paul addressed those gentlemen there in Philippians 1 verse 1, he did so in such a way to encourage them and charge them with the reality of the work that was theirs. And so it is, we'll close that slide and note, what a great benefit then that it is when each of us appreciate that this model, of course, shall stand to the end of time as the model that's the most effective and needful and the only one that's right in the congregations of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Today, as we draw this lesson to a close, we notice that certainly our focus has been on the bishops and the deacons and what the Word of God in a brief way says to them all of us would wish to be the right servants to God. Because on that day of judgment, what will it profit us to have been a servant to anything or anyone else? Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. There will be no rest if we haven't been a servant to Christ. Today, as you analyze yourself and as I do the same for me, where do we stand before the great judge that is Jesus Christ our Lord? It is His church. 
we simply want to be those dutiful stewards within it because 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2 says a steward must be faithful. Are you and I? If you're not a faithful Christian today, would you please think with urgency about your condition? Don't allow this hour to pass without being right with God. Eternity's too long and the consequences are too fatal. If you've never become a Christian, why not obey Him at once today in the following way? Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you become a Christian, but at this point you're unfaithful, you're wayward, you've brought shame upon Jesus, His name upon the church, and yourself, you realize that's not Christ's fault. He told you better. But He does love you enough to give you another opportunity. Why not come back to your first love and do so immediately and do so with a heart desirous of expressing your conviction and belief in Him? Repent of those sins known publicly. Make confession of them and ask brethren to pray for you. Today, if we could assist in carrying either of those things out, we'd be honored to help and we'd be excited to do it and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.